Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and we're continuing tonight our story of John G. Patton, the story of his life. It's in chapter 14, The Great Bereavement. My first house on Tana was on the old site occupied by Turner and Nisbet near the shore, for obvious reasons, and only a, a few feet above tide mark. So was that of Mr. Matheson, uh, handy for uh, materials as good being landed, and as we imagined, close to the healthy breezes of the sea. Alas, we had to learn by sad experience, like our brethren in all untried mission fields. The sites proved to be hotbeds for fever, mine especially, and much of this might have been escaped by building on the higher ground and in the sweep of the refreshing trade winds. For all this, however, no one was to blame. Everything was done for the best, according to the knowledge then possessed. Our house was sheltered behind by an abrupt hill about 200 feet high, which gave the site a feeling of coziness. It was surrounded and much shaded by beautiful breadfruit trees and very large coconut trees, uh, too largely beautiful indeed, for they shut out many a healthy breeze that we sorely needed. There was a long swamp at the head of the bay, and uh, the ground at the other end on which our house stood being scarcely raised perceptibly higher, the malaria almost constantly enveloped us. Once, after a smart attack of the fever, an intelligent chief said to me, Missy, if you stay here, you will soon die. No Tana man sleeps so low down as you do in this damp weather, or he too would die. We sleep on the high ground, and the trade wind keeps us well. You must go and sleep on the hill, and then you will have better health. Well, I at once resolved to remove my house to higher ground at the earliest practicable moment. Heavy though the undertaking would necessarily be, it seemed our only hope of being able to live on the island. Alas, for one of us, it was already too late. My dear young wife, Marianne Robson, landed with me on Tana on the 5th November, 1858, in excellent health and full of all tender and holy hopes. On the 12th February, 1859, God sent to us our firstborn son, and for two days or so both mother and child seemed to prosper, and our island exile thrilled with joy. But the greatest of sorrows was treading hard upon the heels of that joy. My darling's strength showed no signs of rallying. She had an attack of fever, and in a few days, well, on the third day thereafter, it returned and attacked her, attacked her every second day with increasing severity for a fortnight, two weeks. Diarrhea ensued, and symptoms of pneumonia, with slight delirium at intervals, and, and then in a moment, uh, altogether unexpectedly, she died on the 3rd of March. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy, whom we had named after her father, Peter Robert Robson, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of, as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. I knew then, when too late, that our work had been entered on too near the beginning of the rainy season, 
We were both, however, healthy and hearty, and I daily pushed on with the house, making things hourly more comfortable, in the hope that long lives were before us both, and to be spent for Jesus in seeking the salvation of the perishing heathen. In our mutual inexperience and with our hearts aglow for the work of our lives, we incurred this risk, which should never have been incurred. I only refer to the matter thus in the hope that others may take warning. Stunned by that dreadful loss in entering upon this field of labor, to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. Fever laid a depressing and weakening hand upon me, continuously recurring and reaching oftentimes the very height of its worst burning stages. But I was never altogether forsaken. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me to lay the precious dust of my beloved ones in the same quiet grave, dug for them close by at the end of the house, in all of which last offices my own hands, despite breaking heart, had to take the principal share. I built the grave round and round with coral blocks and covered the top with beautiful white coral, broken small as gravel, and that spot became my sacred and much-frequented shrine during all the following months and years, when I labored on for the salvation of these savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Whensoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green, where with ceaseless prayers and tears I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. Dr. Inglis, my brother missionary on Anitium, wrote to the Reformed Presbyterian magazine, quote, I trust all those who shed tears of sorrow on account of her, uh, her early death, will be enabled in the exercise of faith and resignation to say, The will of the Lord be done. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I need not say how deeply we sympathize with her bereaved parents, as well as with her sorrowing husband. By her death, the mission has sustained a heavy loss. We were greatly pleased with Mrs. Patton during the period of our short time with her. Her mind, naturally vigorous, had been cultivated by a superior education. She was full of missionary spirit and took a deep interest in the native women. This was seen further when she went to Tana, where in less than three months she had collected a class of eight females who came regularly to her to receive instruction. There was about her a maturity of thought, a solidity of character, a loftiness of aim and purpose rarely found in one so young. Trained up in the fear of the Lord from childhood like another Mary, she had evidently chosen that good part which is never taken away from those possessed of it. When she left this island, she had, to all human appearance, a long career of usefulness and happiness on earth before her, but the Lord has appointed otherwise. She is gone, as we trust, to her rest and her reward. 
The Lord has said to her, as he said to David, Thou didst well, in that it was in thine heart to build a house for my name. Uh, Let us watch and pray, for our Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Soon after her death, the good Bishop Selwyn called at Port Resolution Tanna in his mission ship. He came on shore to visit me, accompanied by the Reverend J. O. Patterson. They had met Mrs. Patton on Anitium in the previous year, soon after our arrival, and, and as she was then the picture of perfect health, they also felt her loss very keenly. Standing with me beside the grave of mother and child, I weeping aloud on his one hand, and Patterson, uh, afterward the, the martyr bishop of Kakupu, sobbing silently on the other. Uh, the godly Bishop Selwyn poured out his heart to God amidst sobs and tears, during which he laid his hands on my head and invoked heaven's richest consolations and blessings on me and my trying labors. Sorrow and love constrained me to linger over her last words. She cried, Oh, that my dear mother were here. She is a good woman, my mother, a jewel of a woman. And then observing Mr. Copeland nearby, she said, Oh, Mr. Copeland, I did not know you were there. You must not think that I regret coming here and leaving my mother. If I had the same thing to do over again, I would do it with far more pleasure, yes, with all my heart. Oh, no, I I do not regret leaving home and friends, though at the time I, I felt it keenly. Soon after this, looking up and putting her hand in mine, she said, J.C. wrote to our Janet, saying that young Christians, under their first impressions, thought they could do anything or make any sacrifice for Jesus, and he asked if she believed it, for he did not think they could when tested. But Janet wrote back that she believed they could, and and she added with great emphasis, I believe it's true. In a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she fell asleep in Jesus with these words on her lips, not lost, only gone forever, gone before to be forever with the Lord. My heart keeps saying or singing to myself from that hour till now. It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstance, but feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. I do not pretend to to see through the mystery of such visitations, wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and, and those sorely needed for his service here, but this I do know and feel, that in the light of such dispensations it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. Well, let's move on to chapter 15. It's called At Home with Cannibals. In the first letter sent jointly by Mr. Copeland and myself from Tana to the church at home, the following statements occur. Quote, We found the Tannese to be painted savages, enveloped in all the superstition and wickedness of heathenism. All the men and children go in a state of nudity. The older women wear grass skirts, and the young women and girls grass or leaf aprons like Eve in Eden. They are exceedingly ignorant, 
vicious and bigoted, and almost void of natural affection. Instead of the inhabitants of Port Resolution being improved by by coming in contact with white men, they are rendered much worse, for they have learned all their vices but none of their virtues. If such are possessed by the pioneer traders among such races, the sandalwood traders are as a class the most godless of men, whose cruelty and wickedness make us ashamed to own them as our countrymen. By them the poor defenseless natives are oppressed and robbed on every hand, and if they offer the slightest resistance, they are ruthlessly silenced by the musket or revolver. Few months here pass without some of them being so shot, and instead of their murderers feeling ashamed, they boast of how they dispatch them. Such treatment keeps the natives always burning under a desire for revenge, so that it is a wonder any white man is allowed to come among them. Indeed, all traders here are able to maintain their position only by revolvers and rifles. But we hope a better state of affairs is at hand for Tana. End of quote. The novelty of our being among them soon passed away. They began to show their avarice and deceitfulness in every possible way. The chiefs united and refused to give us the half of the small piece of land which had been purchased, on which to build our mission house. And when we attempted to fence in the part they had left to us, they tabooed it. That is, they threatened our teachers and us with death if we proceeded further with the work. This they did by placing certain reeds stuck into the ground here and there around our house, which our servants at once knew the meaning of and warned us of our danger. And so we left off making the fence that we might, if possible, evade all offense. They then divided the few breadfruit and cocoa nut trees on the ground amongst themselves, or demanded such payment for these trees as we did not possess, and threatened revenge on us if the trees were injured by any person. They now became so unreasonable and offensive, and our dangers so increased, as to make our residence amongst them extremely trying. At this time, a vessel called. I bought from the captain the things for payment which they demanded. On receiving it, they lifted the taboo, and for a little season appeared to be friendly again. This was the third payment they had got for that sight, and to yield was, was teaching them a cruel lesson. All this we felt and clearly saw, but they had by some means to be conciliated, if possible, and our lives to be saved, if that could be done without dishonor to the Christian name. After these events, a few weeks of dry weather began to tell against the growth of their yams and bananas. The drought was instantly ascribed to us and our God. The natives far and near were summoned to consider the matter in public assembly, and next day, Nuka, the high chief, and Miyaki, the war chief, his nephew, came to inform us that two powerful chiefs had openly declared in that assembly that if the harbor people did not at once kill us or compel us to leave the island, they would, unless the rain came plentifully in the meantime. They would summon all the inland people and murder both our chiefs and us. The friendly chiefs said, Pray to your Jehovah God for rain, and do not go far beyond your door for a time. We are all in greatest danger, 
and if war breaks out, we fear we cannot protect you. But this friendliness was all pretense. They themselves, being sacred men, professed to have the power of sending or withholding rain and tried to fix the blame of their discomfiture on us. The rage of the poor ignorant heathen was thereby fed against us. The ever-merciful, our God, however, again interposed on our behalf. On the following Sabbath, just when we were assembling for worship, rain began to fall, and in great abundance. The whole inhabitants believed, apparently, that it was sent to save us in answer to our prayers. And so they met again, and resolved to allow us to remain on Tana. Alas, on the other hand, the continuous and heavy rains brought much sickness and fever in their train, and again their sacred men pointed to us as the cause. Hurricane winds also blew and injured their fruits and fruit trees, another opportunity for our enemies to lay the blame of everything uh, upon the missionaries and their Jehovah God. The trial and the danger grew daily of living among a people so dreadfully benighted by superstition and so easily swayed by prejudice and passion. The natives of Tana were well nigh constantly at war amongst themselves, every man doing that which was right in his own eyes, and almost every quarrel ending in an appeal to arms. Besides many battles far inland, one was fought beside our houses and several around the harbor. In these conflicts, Many men were bruised with clubs and wounded with arrows, but few lives were lost, considering the savage uproar and frenzy of the scene. In one case, of which we obtained certain information, seven men were killed in an engagement, and according to Tanese custom, the warriors and their friends feasted on them at the close of the fray, the widows of the slain being also strangled to death and similarly disposed of. Besides those who fell in war, the natives living in our quarter had killed and feasted on eight persons, usually in sacrificial rites. It is said that the habitual cannibal's desire for human flesh becomes so horrible that he has been known to disinter and feast upon those recently buried. Two cases of this revolting barbarism were reported as having occurred amongst the villagers living near us. On another occasion, the great chief Nuka took seriously unwell, and his people sacrificed three women for his recovery. All such cruel and horrifying practices, however, they tried to conceal from us, and many must have perished in this way of whom we, though living at their doors, were never permitted to hear. Amongst the heathen in the New Hebrides, and especially on Tana, Woman is the downtrodden slave of man. She is kept working hard and bears all the heavier burdens while he walks by her side with musket, club, or spear. If she offends him, he beats or abuses her at pleasure. A savage gave his poor wife a severe beating in front of our house and just before our eyes, while in vain we strove to prevent it. Such scenes were so common that no one thought of interfering. Even if the woman died in his hands, or immediately thereafter, neighbors uh, took little notice, if any at all. And their children were so little cared for that my constant wonder was how any of them survived at all. 
As soon as they are able to knock about, they are left practically to care for themselves. Hence the very small affection they show toward their parents, which results in the aged who are unable to work being neglected and starved to death, sometimes even more directly and violently destroyed. A heathen boy's education consists in being taught to aim skillfully with the bow, throw the spear faultlessly at a mark, to wield powerfully the club and the tomahawk, and to shoot well with musket and revolver when these can be obtained. He accompanies his father and brothers in all the wars and preparations for war, and is diligently initiated into all their cruelties and lusts, as the very prerequisite of his being regarded and acknowledged to be a man and a warrior. The girls have, with their mothers and sisters, to toil and slave in the village plantations, to prepare all the materials for fencing these around, and to bear every burden, to be knocked about at will by the men and boys. Oh, how sad and degraded is the position of woman where the teaching of Christ is unknown or disregarded, though known. It is the Christ of the Bible, it is his spirit entering into humanity that has lifted woman and made her the helpmate and the friend of man, not his toy or his slave. That's chapter 15. Next time, chapter 16, Superstitions and Cruelties. Thank you so much for being here again today. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.